beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good, Sean. Thanks for having me. And thank you to all the listeners for listening to this episode. Absolutely. Uh, big shout out to all the listeners uh, across the world and Canada and the United States. We really appreciate every time you tune in and download an episode. And hopefully uh, you're getting as much out of it as uh, we are and uh, the guests are. So today's show, we have Tim Murphy. Tim is, a, is an associate professor of psychology at Brock University. However, his path was not exactly straight. Tim completed a math degree at Waterloo in 1983, but was not a serious student. He was heavily involved as a drummer in competitive pipe bands and even won a world championship in 1987. After his math degree, he drove a truck for seven years, during which time he met Wendy, a wonderful woman he would eventually marry. She convinced him to return to university, and they completed MA degrees in psychology at Brock and had just begun their PhDs when Wendy passed away. Tim completed his PhD and was hired by Brock University. Tim recently came out of a 27-year retirement from drumming to play concerts with some of his old bandmates in Glasgow and Belfast. In 1997, he created a scholarship in Wendy's name and continues to raise funds to support it by running a golf tournament each fall. Tim, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. Yes, Tim, it's great to have you on the podcast. We, uh, we're in the same department and I always see you around. And it's nice that uh, you're willing to come on. And I know you're always busy and doing stuff in your office. So uh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. All right. So it's always interesting. Say I just got your bio and all the different things that you have done in your life. Because a lot of times, especially with me, I look around the department and if someone's a professor, I say this is their life. Like I don't really question what else have they done. But you have done so many things from being like a truck driver to even playing in a, a pipe band. So let's go back to the beginning. Uh, and why did you uh, first go to Waterloo to try to get a math degree? Was there like an ultimate goal? Uh, yes, there was. And uh, this is a story I've told several times um, over the years. But my original goal was to be a uh, high school mathematics teacher. And so Waterloo, if you want to be in math, that was the place to go. And they also had a, uh, a co-op program so I could get experience uh, teaching while I did my math degree. Unfortunately, I didn't maintain a high enough average to get into that program. So I shadowed that program, took all the same courses, just didn't get the teaching experience. But as I mentioned, between a combination of being very involved in pipe bands at the time and being, um, for lack of a better term, young and stupid, I didn't work very hard at my math degree. And so uh, I graduated with a, an overall average of 60.6. And you had to have a minimum 60 to maintain your major. And so I used to joke that I wondered where, um, I, where I'd wasted the energy on the last 0. 0.6. And um, so with that... Uh, uh, stellar transcript that entitled me to uh, get a job as a truck driver. And it was actually quite easy to fall into. I just went back to my summer job that I'd been doing all through university um, and just didn't leave in the fall and ended up staying there for seven years. So you actually um, were, were was doing your truck driving while you were in university? Uh, yes, but only during oh. the summers. It was, it was my summer job working for a, a company here in Thorold uh, near St. Oh. Catharines. And so I went. I just went back 
in um, April or the May after my last year the way I had always done. And when fall came, had nothing else to do, so I just stayed and, and kept working. So it was a summer job that ended up lasting about seven years. Wow. And did you enjoy that job? Because some people say they really enjoy just being on the I road. Did. I did. I, I enjoy driving, and I liked my job very much. Um, the two key factors that led to me leaving, uh, the first was I fell and injured my leg quite badly at work in uh, January of 1989, and I was off work for about six months in total. And when I went back, I just didn't enjoy it anymore. And uh, by then, I was, I was with Wendy. We had met in 19, late in 1983-84, somewhere in that range. And um, uh, she convinced me that maybe I should give the university another shot. And she had completed a degree in English, um, but her marks, marks in English are notoriously low. And to get in teacher's college, it's strictly pretty much your average. They don't take into account what faculty you come from or what uh, program you come from. And so her grades weren't high enough, and mine obviously weren't high enough, but we had both noticed that we did well in psychology courses as electives without even really trying. So we thought we'll take psychology courses just to raise our average enough to get into teacher's college. So psychology was strictly a pragmatic decision. Um, we were just trying to raise our average with these easy courses, in air quotes. That's so interesting. And so you guys were like almost made for each other. <laughs> You're both yeah. pretty poor students in every other <laughs> area except psychology. I like yeah. that. Well, just 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 to just to to um, correct one thing, uh, Wendy was wasn't a poor student, but we both wanted to teach high school, and mm -hmm. so you needed an exceptionally high average. They only accept 15 people a year. It's easier to get into medical school than um, teachers' college to teach high school, and That's so not the um, same now, right? yeah, like she now, she she had an over she her average was over eighty. Um, she had her her first class honors distinction, but even that wasn't enough to even think about getting into teachers' college, at least for the um, senior level. So we um, started taking um, courses here, undergraduate courses in psychology. We both did second uh, undergraduate degrees and um, did very well at them, and both got scholarships. And by the time that we had um, been accepted to go to teacher's college, we'd also been accepted to do our master's here at Brock, uh, both with scholarships. And so I remember us joking that, well, they're going to give us money to go to school? Like, we've got to try this. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, we both did our, our master's um, here at Brock, and then... Um, when we finished our master's, I was hired to teach the statistics course here, Psych 2F23, and um, she took a year off just to research what she might want to do, and we ended up at Waterloo almost as a mistake because I, I'd been accepted to go to Queens, but her offer at Queens um, wasn't very good. Um, we had decided, by that point, we had decided that um, you know, we no longer were interested in teaching high school. Um, so she wanted to be a clinical psychologist and she didn't get accepted to the clinical program at Queens, but I got in at, at Queens and she got accepted to the clinical program at the University of British Columbia, but they had nothing for me. So we decided to, um, split the difference and go to Waterloo because it let us remain affiliated with the lab we'd worked in here because my supervisor, Sid Sigalowicz and her supervisor, Jane Daiwan, that we'd had for our undergraduate degrees, 
we're both affiliated with Waterloo, and so we were able to do our research here at Brock. Um, so we actually um, applied to and got into Waterloo in something just under two days because we were past the deadline. So we just wrote them a letter and said, would you consider us? And um, went up and met with the director of the program at the time, and he let us come in and start that fall. So it's kind of a, a, a strange thing. I joke that nothing I do seems to be in a, in a normal way. <laughs> um, so we both ended up going to university, neither of us had applied to. <laughs> at least not initially and under under you know through the formal process it seems like your directions kind of changed as you went along in life experiencing different things what what changed in that you went from wanting to kind of teach to a little bit of a different path in terms of it looks like masters and research and phd um the biggest um influence in sort of abandoning the the idea of teaching was just by chance. Uh, Wendy and I ran into a, a teacher that taught the high school we went to. There was actually uh, eight years between us, but we went to the same high school. We were from the same town. So we, I didn't know her um, until later, but having both gone to the same high school, we ran into a teacher and, and he told us that if he was younger and had to do, to, uh, you know, had to do things, his life over again now or in in the 1990s, um, he would not go into teaching again. He said it was getting um, much more complicated, much less satisfying. Uh, there were so many rules and regulations that um, he just didn't find it as interesting. And by then, we were both working as teaching assistants while we were doing our, um, well, both our undergraduate and our graduate degrees. And so we'd both become quite enamored with working with students at the university level. So um, I thought, well, I would pursue more of an academic path and get into teaching at the university level. Uh, and Wendy was more interested in clinical. But even having said that, she certainly would not have minded becoming a clinical professor um, and you know, combining teaching and research and clinical work all together as a few members here in the, in the uh, department have. Uh, but she was a bit undecided. She would, thought she would get the clinical degree out of the way first, and then can worry about the uh, you know, what, what she would do with it later. But for me, I've always been interested in teaching. I've always loved teaching. Um, I've just changed levels a little bit, and every so often I will run into someone or be speaking to someone at a at a get together or social event, and and they'll say, "Oh, well, you're a professor. Like I'm I'm just a you know high school teacher." And I said, "Well, I couldn't get in. I'm a professor because I couldn't get into the school you got into." So, you know, don't don't put yourself down at all. You know, you're not just a teacher. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, there's yeah. a lot of obviously a lot of value in, in teaching at any level. It's just your scope changes. And it seems like, you know, as you guys went along, you gathered more knowledge, more information, you know, the well got deeper and you just, you know, you just now you're teaching uh, people at different levels, like you said, you know, university or, you know, if you're clinical clients and whatnot. Yes. And um, we also got a lot of good advice along the way, and a bit of advice that I always credit to uh, someone I know you're quite familiar with, Dr. Kathy Balicki, um, that she gave Wendy and I as undergraduates that I've, I've always remembered and uh, found very useful, and I've told many other people, is that sometimes it's easier to learn to like what you're good at than trying to be good at what you like. Mm. So we had a, a natural... Um, 
uh, whatever you want to call it, talent or psychology seemed to make sense to us. And so rather than, you know, continuing to beat on the door, trying to get in teacher's college and only worrying about grades, we said, why don't you see what you can do in psychology? You seem to be pretty good at it and you, um, you know, you might find aspects of it you like. And so when we looked around and thought about it, we, you know, I thought, well, I really like TAing and I, I like teaching. And the year I was very fortunate to be able to teach a course right after I finished my master's. Um, it's not something a lot of people get to do, but the department was in a bit of a bind at the time because of um, some people on sabbatical. And um, because I had a math degree and I was a little bit older, I think I got a few breaks there. So I got a chance to try teaching a, a course on my own and really liked it. So decided that was the, the direction I wanted to head. And Wendy, being involved with um, two or three of the clinical professors here, had started to get a little bit of clinical training and was working with people and doing some research part-time and um, seemed to be pretty good at that. She was quite intuitive and very observant. So uh, she decided she would explore that aspect and see what about clinical um, psychology she might like and if that might be a direction to go. So uh, we both took that advice. We got very seriously. And whenever I mention it to Kathy, she always denies having said it or at least claim she has no memory of ever saying it to us but i'm i'm very certain it was her it sounds like good advice. good advice yeah yeah it's been very good advice from what i understand you know you seem like you know a person with a lot of varying interest and you know you're able to hone in on that and say okay now you know i also have to kind of look at a career and like let's let's kind of fine-tune this and see where i can go with this now looking at your research that you kind of look into now you've kind of narrowed it down to sleep so what? Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. What made you want to kind of focus in on sleep? In some ways, quite a pragmatic decision. Um, but here is the, uh, uh, the sort of circumstance that led me to that. Um, Wendy and I were in the first group of master's students. The master's program here began in 1993, and we were among the very first class that was let in. And there were rules at the time that have since been eased or eliminated. But one rule they were very strict on at the time was that you could not do your master's with the same supervisor as your undergraduate degree if you chose to stay here at Brock. And since I had done um, my undergraduate degree with Sid Segalowicz, I couldn't do my master's with him as well. But literally just down the hall was the sleep lab that used similar technology, and the director was Bob Ogilvie, who is a, a absolutely wonderful and brilliant person. So I got talking to him, and... The sleepiness aspect came from the fact that because all the while I was driving truck, I was also in a, this competitive pipe band that was based in Toronto. I was driving to Toronto and back through the day in my truck and literally some days getting out of my truck after a 10 or 11 hour day and getting back in my car and driving back to Toronto for practice and then home again. Um, sometimes sleeping in my car, getting out of my car and getting back in my truck the next day. Uh, so I, I drove tired um, a lot, and so because his specialty was sleep onset, uh, I got talking to him about, well, what about when, you're, when you fall asleep when you're trying to stay awake? Um, how does that differ from, from regular sleep onset? And so that became the, uh, the sort of broad focus of my master's work. So I drew some of my uh, experience as a truck driver and driving tired and hearing stories about people falling asleep and having these horrendous crashes 
and uh, it fit under his umbrella of, of sleep onset. So that was the uh, that was my master's work was in unintentional sleep onset. So I was having people watching people fall asleep when they were trying to stay awake and seeing how that differed from regular sleep onset. And then when I started to do my PhD work, I went back back down the hallway the other direction to Sid's lab again. Um, but he didn't have an actual sleep lab. And so I moved, I, I, I joke, jokingly say that I just moved my research back 15 or 30 minutes and looked at sleep deprivation and how people perform when they're sleepy as opposed to how they fall asleep. So there is a, there is a bit of a logic and a continuity to it, even though it's uh, not readily apparent without knowing the backstory. That's so interesting how it all came together. And like people always wonder like for themselves too, like as you move forward, like when, the, like how things are going to like unfold. And sometimes yeah. you don't know, but you do something that you're, you're conscious of that you have an interest in and it tends to fit when you, when you least expect it. So that's really cool. You got to look at sleeping and you tied it to your truck driving. Did you mm -hmm. ever um, fall asleep at the wheel when you're driving truck? Yes. You did. Yeah, I, I, I came very, very, very close, far too close than I ever want to again, uh, to likely killing several people uh, in Toronto one time. I was up, I don't remember the exact road, but I remember it was near the airport, and I was driving along, and um, I dozed off, and uh, I woke up just in time to slam on the brakes, and I skidded to a halt at about a 45-degree angle, probably not more than four or five feet behind the last car that was stopped at a stoplight. And there was a, there was a, a two-lane road with at least two or three cars in each lane. So if I had slept literally another one or two seconds, I would have just plowed right through all of them. Wow. That, 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 that sort of event sticks in your mind. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. After that, I was much more careful. There, and and there's a you know there's a large group of the population like for myself like I've worked in a lot of manufacturing jobs um, I've worked a lot of shift work and I think it's then when you really realize the importance of sleep and what it does for you uh, benefit wise to to have optimal sleep how you feel when when that's the situation yeah. or how you feel when you're deprived and it's scary because you know I've gone on the road after a night shift and you know you you, you do feel your eyelids start to be heavy and it's it's a totally different um feeling and now i'm more aware when i'm driving and i i don't work not any off shifts anymore but when i'm driving or, or going places you know you could see people who are probably doing those jobs who are probably sleep deprived on the highways or you know in in w just at the store or whatever it is and and you feel for them because you know how important it is and and mm -hmm. so especially you like having studied all these different uh what happens, you know, exactly in the brain, what's going on, uh, you know, how important is it exactly from, from your learnings? Uh, well, it's, it's absolutely critical. First of all, things that are not my research, just things I've, I've read and, and, and I know about, there's almost nothing good that happens from being sleepy or doing shift work. Uh, so one of my bits of advice is if you can avoid it in your life, avoid shift work. Um, people that, um, do shift work for long periods of time. They have higher instances of virtually every type of disease, um, divorce, conflict, you know, be getting arrested, etc. It just it just wears on you, and uh, so there's no good from that comes from shift work. 
other than perhaps a, a premium increase in uh, in your rately pay, hourly pay or something. Uh, but aside from that, avoid shift work if you can. Um, in terms of performing while you're sleepy, uh, my research has shown that um, it might sound obvious, but um, you know you're never certain until you actually you know look at it and quantify it. But the one result of mine that I that I liked the most um, was we were actually um, had people gambling because we were looking for tasks about 10 years ago. We were thinking, well, what what can people do that they're familiar with that has like good and bad outcomes, you know, et cetera, that uh, you know people can do while they're sleepy. And I don't know who thought of it or who suggested it, if it was me or someone else, but we came up with the idea of gambling. So we had people playing a very simplified version of blackjack that we jokingly called Brockjack. <laughs> um, and because blackjack is such a complicated game, and without getting into the intricacies of the type of work I do with um, EEG and something called event-related potentials, we need multiple trials. We can't just have something do someone do something someone do something once. We have to have them do it multiple times in order to to look at the pattern. So. Um, this is a very simple game where you're trying to get as close as you can to seven, and the cards are numbered from one to seven. And you get one card, and you can either hit or stay, but you can only take one more card. So if you get a one and hit, and you get a one, you know your game is still over, then the dealer plays, um, just to make it simple. And so, of course, in this game, there are risky bets. You know, if you hit with a, you know, a, a three or four or five or something, and there are less risky bets, and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And there's a part of your brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, which if you put your finger right on top of your head and point down, it's about two inches below that. It's in the very center of your brain, and it appears to be a very important part of the brain in, in terms of um, uh, coordinating a lot of other activity. And one of its functions appears to be to alert you to things that have gone wrong or might go wrong. So um, whenever people would you know, hit and bust or just lose, you know, your interior singlet fires off. And what we found was when we looked at the activity of comparing winning and losing, alert and sleepy, so sort of two different conditions across each one, um, when you're alert and you lose, a lot of activity in your interior singlet cortex. And when you win, you know, not as much. But when you're sleepy, it was virtually identical. So there's evidence that you're either no longer processing wins and losses in the same way, or you're processing them in a much more similar way. So you're not really discerning the difference anymore. And so, you know, that would fit the uh, um, sort of practical information that we have in terms of why casinos are open 24 hours and why there are no clocks anywhere and why they will do things, give you free food or drinks to try and keep you playing longer. Because the longer you play and the more tired you get, the less likely you are to experience losing as a bad thing anymore. So your decision-making directly affected. Yeah. Wow. And that, that definitely has ramifications in the real world. Because, you, you know, obviously you're looking at, let's say, someone coming off of a night shift. Now they're driving back home while their mm -hmm. driving decisions will be impaired, essentially. Yeah, or even scarier in some ways. And I don't do this personally, but I know that there is a lot of research being done on uh, doctors in emergency rooms 
mm-hmm. because the, the typical um, schedule in the past has been 24-hour calls. So if it's busy, doctors would sometimes work 24 hours straight in emergency rooms, especially in the larger ones. Um, I'm, not sh- I'm not as sure about Canada, but I know in the States, uh, they would often be on 24-hour call. And if it was if it wasn't so busy, they could like there were beds and little rooms where they could go and take naps or get a bit of sleep. But if it was busy, you know, and you're being wheeled in with uh, um, some sort of injury or sickness, and the person has to decide what's wrong with you and what the appropriate treatment is, there was a chance not all that long ago that that doctor may have been awake for 24 hours already. That's now there, I I don't know the current state of the legislation or the scheduling. I know that they've eliminated. Uh, quite a bit of that because of the um, research done on sleep deprivation and sleep restriction. And so I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think that there are a lot of places that still have these, you know, 24 hour calls either. It's um, well, same as with truck drivers and airline pilots, whenever it's now mandated that you must at least have time off every so often. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that the, uh, the rules vary from, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, so I'm not sure how many places would still have these, um, you know, very long um, periods of work where doctors, you know, would be on call. Yeah, and, you know, those are kind of like, everybody knows about those jobs, everybody kind of understands the sleep deprivation. My concern would be the general population that doesn't have those, that leeway or anything built in as well. Like, for instance, you know, if I've had jobs where, you know, it's just been straight night shifts. And these individuals that go to these jobs, things happen in life where they don't might not get sleep during the day, whether they have families or some emergency happen. They don't have the luxury sometimes of calling their work and saying, hey, you know, I, I can't come in. I've, I haven't slept. You know, that mm-hmm. that might be OK a couple of times, but just like any other occasion, like a sick day or whatever, people you know have a limited supply. So they're going to go into work yeah. without sleep. And that's not only dangerous at work, especially if you're in a manufacturing environment, but dangerous outside when that person goes home or, you know, during the day if they haven't mm-hmm. slept and they have to go run errands. That's a little concerning. Yeah, and that that happens in very much in the real world because I know, uh, well, maybe not so much now. I haven't driven trucks since the early 90s. But um, the place where I worked, there were a couple times after I had that, that scare I told you about where if I had a really bad night, um, you know, if, if I was sick or not feeling well, or somebody was making noise or something, and I just, I just hadn't slept, I would call in sick. And I know the one time I was silly enough to admit to that. And they said, Oh, are you sick? And I said, No, I'm just really tired because I, 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 I couldn't sleep last night or something was happening. Or, um, I can't remember the exact details, but they said, Well, then, you know, you should come in. And I, they were, they were giving me a hard time for not coming in because my reason for not wanting to drive was that I was tired. And so after that, I would just, if it, if it came up, I would just say I was sick. I think a lot of people still do that um, yeah. because it is looked down upon for whatever reason that if you're, you know, you're sleepy, you're weak for some reason, yeah. you know, um, and you see that a lot of times with even lawyers and stuff too, right? Like they say, you always have to keep working. It's about the money. It's about getting ahead. And so they yeah. really sort of almost our culture anyways, this culture um, really trains people to reduce their sleep if they need more time to do other yeah. things. Um, yeah, very but, much so. And that was um, part of the reason why I chose the type of research I do. I, I didn't mention the details. I look at 20 hours of sleep deprivation because there's, there's 
thousands of articles out there on um, long-term sleep deprivation, like a minimum of 24 hours, often 36, 48, 60, um, 72 hours even. And a lot of it's been done by the military because they were interested in seeing how well people perform after they've been awake for two days or something. Um, but that just didn't interest me. I would joke that, well, you know, you keep people up for 48 hours and they, they're not very good at stuff. You know, wow, what a surprise. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I look at about 20 hours. So that means if somebody gets up at 8 in the morning, I'll test them about 4 the following morning. Because that's, that's realistic. Everybody, virtually everybody's had to do that. You know, you get up, you work all day, you go out, yeah. you do something else. Um, somebody needs a favor and you end up driving home at 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning after getting up at, you know, 7 or 8 or 9 the previous day. And so that's the time frame that, that I study people at. And I'm showing differences uh, electrophysiologically, brain differences, sometimes in the absence of um, behavioral differences. So people are still performing as well. And what got me on that idea was I saw a presentation on someone who was testing doctors. And this was in a, in a laboratory situation. They had people coming in and there's apparently some sort of machine where you can practice um, stitching. And they have our artificial skin that you stitch up. And the test for it is you have to be able to inflate this thing to a certain air pressure to show that you've adequately stitched it. And this person was saying that these doctors who were used to doing 24-hour shifts, for these five-minute tests where they have to, you know, you've got five minutes to stitch this up and then we'll test it. He said, like, they were cheering each other on. It was, it was like a contest. And he said they were performing up to baseline um, quite often. And so... I remember talking to my supervisor at the time, uh, Sid Segalowicz, saying, well, there's research out there that says that when you crank it up, you know, you're still okay, even when you're tired. And I still remember his reply. He says, okay, what's it? And I had no answer. So that's, that's what I've been trying to get at is evidence that the, your brain and your thought processes and your decision making is breaking down before you see evidence of it, behaviorally. Because some people will say, well, if those doctors can stitch these things up after being awake for 24 hours, then what's the problem? And the problem is they're doing one focused thing in um, a controlled environment. But if you ask people to do two or three things and it becomes less obvious because they have one task, they know what it is, you know, I have to stitch this thing as well as I can, you know, that's the trade-off when we do um, research and experiments is we're trading off, you know, face validity or ecological validity, you know, real-world results to try to isolate one specific aspect. And I'm still firmly convinced that somewhere at about 16 hours of wakefulness, people should just stop doing important or dangerous things, maybe even a bit before that. Yeah, and also, you know, going back to that example, you would think that, these doctors would benefit of obviously, you know, behaviors and discipline of doing the same task over and over again, being ingrained in your, you know, ner your brain neurology and, and whatnot, and, and just focusing on that task because they've done it for hours and hours and hours and hours that they can kind of push themselves, you know, they, uh, their mental capacity for that task is so disciplined but yeah. like you said, you know, you enter in other variables and how do that, how does that performance mm -hmm. peak? How does it go down? And you might not see it. 
because they've, they've been conditioned to use their body so well, but internally what's happening. Hmm. And so moving forward, what's, what are you working on right now? Right now, uh, my most recent project is actually uh, no longer involved with sleep deprivation necessarily, or at least the one upcoming. I'm looking at personality. I'm collaborating with someone else here at Brock, Danielle Molnar, and um, she looks at perfectionism. And there are multiple types of perfectionism, and so we are trying to find the physiological evidence for these different facets of perfectionism. That's uh, one issue that we that uh, we started to look at. We're hoping to collect more data in the near future and to keep analyzing. There are four facets, as I understand it, but only two are of interest to me at the current time. There's self-orient, or sorry, self-prescribed perfectionism, which means that you are, want to be perfect for yourself. It's an intrinsic drive, and there's socially oriented perfectionism, so you're trying to be perfect for other people. And there are also two ways to interpret errors. One is if you're doing a task that's very simple and you notice the error yourself. And when that happens, we see something called the event-related negativity. Or the other one is when you're doing a task and we do something wrong, you get feedback. And that's called the feedback-related negativity. So our hypothesis is that those two types of events we see that are generated by that anterior cingulate cortex, that part of your brain that, that tells you something's gone wrong, um, we're expecting um, a higher correlation between the error-related negativity, the intrinsically noticed error, and the self-oriented perfectionism versus the socially prescribed perfectionism, where you're, you're more worried about what other people think. Not sure if that was clear enough, but yeah, that's one thing clear. coming up. Yeah. Wow, so you're, you're getting a little uh, away from sleep. Is it your plan to sort of do that? Like to, or are you planning to go back to sleep at some point? Um, well, <laughs> I, I, I will always be interested in sleep. And yeah. the part of me, be, because I like to tease people, say I'm planning on going to sleep sometime. Um, <laughs> but just a bad joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, a, a lot of what I do is driven by um, my student interests. Um, I'm very student oriented. So if I have students who are very interested in the sleep deprivation aspect, then I'm happy to do sleep deprivation projects with them. But, um, um, if people are interested in something else that I'm also interested in or could be interested in, then I'm, I'm happy to do that as well. So, uh, the most recent bit of research that we presented at a conference was sleep deprivation research. And all we did was, uh, well, not all, but um, my most recent honor student analyzed some older data to show that uh, the responses um, electrocortically were much more variable when people were sleepy than when they were alert. And so there appears to be um, uh, an issue of, of variability in terms of when things are noticed or how they're noticed that, of course, is going to add to the um, sort of noise in the system and perhaps be explain some of the variability that we see behaviorally as well. well the so uh, project she did was, was quite, uh, it was very technical and using a lot of very sophisticated analyses. Um, it was almost, almost a methodological paper as well as a sleep deprivation paper. So it's hard to, hard to describe. Um, 
what she was doing, especially over the phone when I can't draw pictures. <laughs> no models, but it's, it's, it's great that you're helping students. Cause that's something you've always wanted to do, right. Um, to be that teacher. Mm -hmm. So it's nice you carry that forward and you continue to do that with their interests. So you're not pulling them towards what you're interested in per se. Yeah. And I always tell them I, I, I have my limits. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, pitch me some ideas and we'll see what works out. And, um, the idea about perfectionism and these ERPs was something that um, um, Daniel Molnar pitched to me probably at least five or six years ago or more, but it just sat on the back burner. And then um, a couple students came along uh, a couple years ago and said that, oh, that sounded interesting to them. So we worked that in. And even in that experiment, we had a sleep deprivation category. So uh, we still tested people twice, once when they were alert after being awake about two hours, and once when sleepy after being awake about 20 hours. And we had some hypotheses about how perfectionism might work into that. People who are perfectionists might, might resist sleep deprivation more because they would force themselves or uh, push themselves harder. They would use more of it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and those hypotheses did not work out, but we did get some interesting results from the, or some interesting preliminary results from even just the alert data. Um, that's a, that's but unfortunately, because her the perfectionism research is based on questionnaires, which has inherently more variability than our research, she typically deals with larger numbers in her experiments than I do. My typical experiment will have about 20 people in, and she needs at least 40 or 50, which is why we had to go back to collect more data. Very interesting. Well, I wish you all the best to find the results. And this is the thing with science. You, there's... Once any study you do, there's always a ton of more questions that pop up yeah. and you're never done. So it's just one of those fields you can stay in even past retirement. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so what I want to do is come back to, to Wendy and the loss. And so when did you guys, cause you guys were married. So on your journey, when did you guys actually get married? Was it after your master's? Um, no, uh, we got married between Wendy's, um, second and third year of her original degree. So she was um, uh, 20 or 21, and I was about 29. I think we got married just before I turned 30. Um, yeah, so she must have been, yeah, she must have been 21 at the time. Because I know that now I, I tease myself because I'll see someone in my class, a second year class, wearing an engagement ring, and I'll think, why are you engaged? You're too young. And then remind <laughs> myself that, well, I proposed to Wendy when she was in first year. Um, so <laughs> not much cool. better. And could you tell us a little bit about Wendy? So what was it that, you know, that really sparked your interest in her and made you want to propose? Oh, okay. Well, I can tell you the slightly longer story and I warn people, this sounds creepy, but it really isn't. Um, <laughs> one of the ways that I got interested in teaching again, uh, was I was, I was a drummer and I was teaching a local pipe band in Fort Erie. And there were two drummers in there, a father and a son. And I was teaching them. And at one practice, um, the, the drummer's wife came up to me and asked if I was, or she said she'd heard that I had a math degree. And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, well, would you be interested in teaching my daughter? And originally I thought, well, drums? Or, and she said, no. And her daughter was sick and couldn't go to school. And so she was being home tutored. And I'd never heard of that, but I said, well, all right, I'll, sure, I'll consider it. And so uh, I went and met her. At the time, Wendy was 15, 
and um, she had a disease called dermatomyositis, uh, which is an autoimmune disease. You're basically allergic to yourself, so your defense, your um, own system attacks, primarily your skin, which is why it has the derma name in it. But uh, one of the big problems is it also attacks the muscles. So she's very weak and couldn't go to school. So I taught uh, Wendy at night um, for two years, six hours a week the first year and 10 hours a week the second year, and uh, actually taught her most of high school. She had already taken all of her uh, like geography and English and those sorts of courses from someone else who would do that, but they needed someone to teach her the sciences. So I taught her all four years of math, all four years of high school math, and physics and chemistry, and um, some other things that um, I probably actually shouldn't have been teaching um, in terms of the topics, like uh, grade 12 English, but she was very gifted in English, so me teaching her meant giving her the books and then giving her the exam later. And I coordinated with the high school, so she wrote the same test the people at high school um, wrote, that sort of thing. And so then after um, I'd finished working with her, uh, we started dating when she was 18, and so I would have been 26, I guess. And we joked that it's, uh, it was one of those things that we both knew this was coming, like there was an obvious attraction there, and we got along so, so uh, incredibly well. But we were sort of mindful of the situation, so uh, uh, we waited until it was all you know, legal, quote-unquote. Um, and then uh, we just continued to get, get uh, closer and closer, and uh, after, I fin after I stopped driving and we went to school, um, like the more we were together, the closer we seemed to get. So I used to joke that uh, we were literally together like 22 hours a day, and the other two I missed her. Um, so we did our uh, our second degrees here together, and um, I I give full credit to where I am now uh, to Wendy. Absolutely, 100%. I would not be where I am without Wendy, because she originally talked me into coming back to school, and then also um, was an absolute perfect study partner because we took almost all the same classes. Mm. Um, so we used to joke we'd have our what'd you learn in school today time, and we live about 30 minutes away, so we would talk about what we had, you know, heard in class on the way home, and talk about you know upcoming tests or things on the way in, as well as study together, and we even TA'd several of the same courses. So it was like this live-in perpetual study partner. And because Wendy had an English degree, um, I joked that I got slightly better marks than her only because I had a much better proofreader than she did. Um, so, yeah, it uh, seems like you developed a, a really close friendship along those uh, those years. And, and you know that definitely has led to the closeness and, and you both inspiring each other. Um, was, oh, yeah. she, was she a musical person as well? No. Nope, not at all. So, well, to sort of mix stories here a little bit, she was also the reason I eventually left the uh, competitive pipe band scene because initially she would travel with me and she had a lot of fun. She would enjoy like the uh, the significant others, for better or for worse, usually wives and girlfriends, um, you know, would hang out at the Highland Games and the competitions and they would chat and, and whatever. And she did that for maybe three or four years. But eventually started to, to tire of it. Um, and so she wasn't going as often. And so it wasn't as much fun for me either because we, we traveled quite a bit. 
Uh, in addition to going over to the World Championships in Scotland, we would play at competitions or, or concerts um, all over uh, all over North America and a few in Ireland. Um, so periodically, I'd be going to you know Miami or Vancouver or Houston or something for the weekend, and um, she just wasn't interested in going anymore. And so that cut back on um, how interested I was. So that was one aspect. The other aspect was that um, by 1990-91, um, we were just getting close to finishing our our second bachelor degrees and just starting to get really busy at school. And I was starting to take my academics a bit more seriously. And because of that, I wasn't practicing as much as I had been. And so it was starting to get more difficult and I was getting yelled at more at practice. So just the, the mix of all that together just seemed like a a good time to step away. And at the time, I said I was going to take one year off to finish my degree and then come back, but uh, I just never did. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. So it it seems that you loved her more than you loved bagpipes, which is, I think, a great thing. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so could you talk about now, like, more of her loss and how the passing was for you and maybe, like, what year it occurred? Oh, sure. Um well, we had just started our PhDs at Waterloo in the fall of 96, and um, Wendy got sick in uh, December, just just before Christmas, and she, uh, it was literally my birthday when she got sick. Uh, she woke she woke up and said she didn't feel well, uh, but insisted I come to school, and I, I didn't want to, but she told me I had to go to school, so I phoned her, and uh, I, I came in, and the reason that she wanted me, she knew there was a surprise party planned for me in the lab. And so right after the party, I called her and said she was still not feeling well. In fact, it was a bit worse. So I came home and took her down to emergency at the Fort Erie Hospital. And they kept her a couple hours. And by then she was breaking out in these red dots everywhere. And so they did some blood tests and called for an ambulance, sent her up to McMaster. And um, it was she had ended up uh, having a um, uh, acute form of leukemia that very rapid onset, and so they um, called me aside to tell me that she was likely going to die Christmas Eve, just two days later. But they they pulled her through, and she went through all of her chemotherapy um, through January and February and March. Um, and um, the one story I tell that uh, this show how much academics, how important the school and academics was to Wendy. Uh, she'd been in the hospital for about a month and was getting out sometime in mid to late January after her first round of chemo. And she had lost her hair and she'd lost a bunch of weight. She looked quite frail. And uh, I was driving her home. And we get to uh, maybe, I don't know, about Beamsville or something, Grimsby. And she looks over and said, can we go to school? And so um, as sick as she was, like she wanted to come here to Brock before she went home. Um, but anyway, she went through all the chemotherapy. And then uh, we don't know what happened. Um, she'd been through her third round of chemotherapy, was just waiting for her blood levels to, to um, stabilize. And I was with her one night and said she was very tired and was want to try and uh, get some sleep. And so I said, well, I'll go out to get some dinner. It was probably about 9.30 or 10 o'clock. Um, and uh, the, uh, well, it sounds like it's late past the visiting hours, but... Um, I uh, had a, a, a bed brought in, and so 
Um, there's only two nights when he spent in the hospital I wasn't there. So I stayed with her the whole time and went out for dinner and came back and I was the one that found her. She was she had just died in her sleep. They don't know what happened. I can't imagine, you know, like what that experience would have been like. Um because it it seemed you guys are just a pair. You know, it was just you're, you know, the yin and the yang. You guys are just like fulfilled each other's lives and yeah. come back and her not being there. Um yeah, I can't imagine what that would have been like for you. Yeah. That was very tough. Um so how'd you how'd but, you get through it? Like how so you know that like that occurred? Like how do you pull through? Because I can see a lot of people being very devastated after that experience and just want to sort of you know um, not live. So mm-hmm. what got you back to living? Um, hmm. I'm not entirely sure. Um, my sort of evasive way to answer that is. Uh, another story that I've I've told several times. Um, several years after um, Wendy passed away, I don't know, six, eight, ten years, something like that, maybe a bit less. Someone that we'd known um, while we were while we were here at Brock, um, who was a mature student to come back and had done her her degree as well. Um, her husband died very suddenly, and I went to the funeral home. And she saw me, and she comes over and grabs my hand and comes over and um, said, I want to talk to you. And um, she said, like, like, how do you do it? Like, how do you get through this? And I gave what I thought at the time was the dumbest answer ever. And I said, I don't know. You just do. Yeah, and, so, you know, I'm thinking back to that moment when you guys were coming back uh, from the hospital and Wendy wanted to go back to school. And that might have been a lesson right there. Just a, hey, you got to keep living. Just keep doing what you want to do and push through. Yeah. So I'm not sure if there's if there's any secret or any advice I have other than just just keep going. Um, you know, the same advice I give about how to get through graduate school or how to do lots of things. <laughs> um, as, as silly as it sounds, the best advice is just decide you're not going to quit mm-hmm. and take whatever comes and keep getting up in the morning and uh, um, no, I'm making it sound very simple. Um, I uh, took some time off from my PhD and my progress was pretty slow. I eventually finished, but um, you know, not for quite a while and not after being um, threatened with uh, um, being kicked out a few times, but I managed and eh, eventually worked out. So this is all in part um, I still do it for Wendy in a way. <laughs> well, and you still work at, at Brock, which is, I think, a very beautiful moment. I think like it's, a spe- it's like that Brock is special to you because it's got to remind you of her because she loved oh, it, it so does, much. Yeah, yeah and, and I, I, I joke that I've made a career out of ignoring really good advice um, <laughs> because there were other jobs that came open that I would have been qualified for and at least one that... I I probably could have, you know, gotten hands down, um, but I didn't I didn't want to work anywhere else. I wanted to work here, so I I hung around and worked as a stipend instructor and on contract um, for a long time until a job finally came open that I was I was eligible for, and then I was lucky enough to to get that, and I was able to stay here. 
Wow. That's amazing. It's amazing how things worked out that way. And I like to, I like too how you mentioned it, it was a difficult time and you had to take a break from your schooling. And I think a lot of people that after loss, they try to go right back at it. I know that's what I did when I lost my father. And, you know, it, it, it's sometimes you need that break. You need to sort of find yourself to get motivated enough to do those things you need to do. Um, my, I guess I do have a question. So when you're in, that, in those years um, of, of, you know, really grieving, did you go back to the bagpipe at all as a way of comfort? Ah, uh, no. No way. You still left that. No, I, 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 I'd, I'd had my fill with that, and uh, yeah. no, by then, by then, um, you know, uh, um, I was still in the same house. Like I, I've been in the same house since I was nine years old. So Wendy moved into my family home, <laughs> um, and so you know, the my my house was you know where I felt close to her, and Brock was where I felt close to her. But I didn't really have the same connection with the bands because even when she was hanging around, she was you know, sort of off in the distance, just chatting with people and visiting while we were competing or practicing or warming up or whatever. So um, I don't really associate that with Wendy very much, the, my uh, my pipe band days. Well, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing, you know, that journey, that story, because it probably can relate to a lot of people who are listening and who are going through their own, their own I guess, their own loss and trying to figure things out. I think, you know, your advice of, you know, you just do it is probably the simplest advice you could give someone um, for them to just say it's possible to sort of move forward and with them in your heart. And that's what you've been doing. And you're keeping her memory alive by where you work, um, by where you're living and a lot of other things. And so another thing you do um, that I want to sort of uh, touch on is you also have this memorial golf tournament. Could you speak on that? Oh, sure. When... When Wendy passed away, just a little bit of history, someone said, well, have you thought about what you'd want to donate to? Because they always have, you know, in lieu of flowers, you donate something. I said, well, I want to do something something for Brock. And so um, on my behalf, I don't remember who it was because, you know, things are kind of mixed up for those few days. Um, I think it may have been Sid Stigalowitz, but I'm not sure. But someone checked into it, and they found out that there was a matching program that was expiring on... Um, March 31st, and Wendy passed away on the 26th um, or 27th, depending how you want to define it. It was right around midnight. So I said, well, let's do that then. And so in just maybe four days, there was um, about $7,500 donated to initially set up uh, the award. And because it was matched, that became 15000 originally. And then Wendy's younger sister, Tammy, said that she wanted to do a golf tournament for Wendy that fall. So the first tournament was in September of 97, and she had passed away in March. And so we ran that first tournament and had a lot of fun. So we decided to um, keep doing that. And so last year was the 20th tournament. This September, I believe, 9th will be the 21st. Um, and between the, the various matching funds from different government agencies and um, the golf tournament and other people who've just um, donated over the years and with interest in investing it. Um, the the capital that's available now is um, something around a quarter of a million dollars, about 250000 And with that, we normally provide two awards each year to two um, graduate students. And we wanted the awards to go to people who represented 
the, some of the things that Wendy did. And so our working title was that the person has to have a good head and a good heart. So we try to provide um, or put equal weight to the academic aspect as well as the uh, person in terms of what do they do for other people around them. And so people who've received the award, sometimes they do a lot within the school, perhaps even only within the department or within their lab, but they're just really helpful and help other people out and do a lot for the people around them to make the world a better place. Whereas um, others have done things more outside the school, um, worked for service organizations or done volunteer work or uh, raised money for other charities, um, that sort of thing. So anyway, we wanted the award not just to be strictly academic, but we wanted it to go to people who show both um, strong promise and talent at, at academics as well as are contributing to society or the people around them in some meaningful way to help out others, you know, very loosely defined. I like that because a lot of scholarships out there are for like mind-based, right? Like how good are you in academics and how well can you write? Uh, but this is about the heart and it does connect you to the loss. And I think it means a little, little more to people who care about that. And so I'm, I'm really glad that uh, you have that award for those people. Um, that are making a difference in the world, um, a lot of times not even being being shown. So this is a great way to acknowledge them. And so can you tell us like where and when that golf tournament would be? Uh, yeah, it's always at the Fort Erie Golf Club, which is on Garrison Road in Fort Erie. And it's always the second Saturday in September. And which I should have prepared better for this, but I will open up my uh, my phone here quickly to make sure I I think, uh, let me double check here just to make sure I got it right. Yeah, it is the 9th. So this year it is Saturday, September 9th. And um, because we don't want to be exclusive and it's just a fun day, it's a best ball tournament. So that means that um, all four people in your foursome tee off, and among you, you decide which one is the best shot. And the other three retrieve their ball and move it to that location. Then you all hit again. And then you decide which one's the best shot. The other three retrieve their ball, move to that location, I'll hit again. And so you don't have to be a, a great golfer or worry that you're going to spend the entire day trudging through the woods trying to trying to find your ball or something. Um, as long as you have one decent golfer in your foursome, you can get through. And it's not a terribly difficult course. It is 18 holes, but it's only a par 57, so it's not a terribly long or difficult course. Um, we just want people to come out and, and have some fun and raise a bit of money. Um, everybody gets a commemorative gift, often a t-shirt or something like that, you know, with the tournament name on it. And there are prizes at the end and, uh, and a dinner and, um, you get all that for $90. And so if anybody's interested in, um, participating, um, you can send me an email. I have a, an email set up for the tournament itself. It's W M M G T at hotmail.com. So it's an acronym for Wendy Murphy Memorial Golf Tournament. W-M-M-G-T at hotmail.com. And I can send you more information if anybody's interested. And if you don't want to golf but just want to contribute, we also have whole sponsorships that are $50 each. And we will put your name on a, on a small um, sign on the hole. It may be shared if we have more than 18, but your name will be uh, displayed and you'll be acknowledged at the... Um, dinner afterwards, or if anyone just wants to donate, they can send me um, an email to that same address, and I can give them information about how to 
to donate either through me or directly to Brock, and it will go into um, um, the account for uh, Wendy's fund. And just to point out something I didn't mention before, just in case, when I say that um, we provide these these prizes, and it's a quarter million dollars might seem like a lot of money, but this is an endowed scholarship, which means that we're only allowed to spend 3% per year. And what that lets us do is make sure that this will be, this will go on in perpetuity. So even if I decide I, I, I just can't do this anymore uh, or we lose interest and we stop running the tournaments now, that amount of money that's invested would provide enough so that um, we continue to offer this prize um, essentially forever. And because we're only allowed to spend 3% and it's invested and makes typically more than that, the, the amount can also be increased to keep up with inflation over the years. So it doesn't end up, as I joke, you know, the winner in um, 2150 can buy a coffee with it or something. <laughs> so the, the amount will continue to increase to um, keep up with inflation. It's amazing. Um, you thought about this and you want it to be um, something that can continue on even after you're gone. And so yeah. her memory continues on. Um, and I think it's beautiful. So yeah, if anyone from, I guess, Southern Ontario um, yeah. wants to come out and play, that's great. If not, if, um, feel free to, to donate um, mm -hmm. either your name for a hole um, or a prize if you, if you want. So that's beautiful. So I wish you all the success with that. And so before we, we wrap up, we always like to talk about dreams. So every, have you ever had a, a dream of Wendy after she passed? Um, I, a couple that I remember. I, I remember very few dreams um, in general. So I, I've likely had many more, but just um, forgotten them over time. Uh, but there are two that I remember because they were, they were very, very vivid. And um, uh, one was very upsetting. One was very calming. Um, and I'm not sure what either of them means or if dream means anything or dreams mean anything in particular. Um, but, uh, one that I know wasn't terribly long after she died, but I don't remember by now cause she passed away quite a while ago now. I don't remember if it was a month or two months or six months, but somewhere reasonably close. And the only thing I remember about it, um, is that she was either at the top of a stairway or down a hall. I, I couldn't really tell which. And she was there, and she came towards me. And I don't remember her saying anything or whatever. Um, but it was kind of weird. It was like a special effect in a movie. Like she literally like passed right through me and disappeared. And I remember just feeling her like I, I could smell her I could sense her and I woke up so happy just for a few minutes so that was the one I remember and the other one far more disturbing I don't know what it means um, this one I believe that um, I think she may have been in the hospital for this dream or not I'm not sure but I know she was in bed and every time I touched her she yelled out in pain and finally, about after the third or fourth time of me trying to trying to touch her and her screaming, um, she said, "I don't think this is going to work," and disappeared. So again, don't know what would cause that or what it means, but 
Mm -hmm. yeah, it is what it is. Wow. Thank you for sharing those dreams. Cause you know, like you said, the first one, you said it like, it made you feel happier when you woke up, yeah. like for that moment, you know, like something was beautiful and you had that connection. And I think you know, a lot of listeners have those dreams, but you know, listeners also have the dreams you talk about where you don't really know, but they're negative and you don't feel positive when you woke up. And I think it's just good to normalize those experiences um, as you move forward. And do they mean something or not? You know, that's really up to you as you move forward. Um, but I think talking about them is a great way to at least release them and release the emotions that are associated with them. Um, and so now that you sort of had both sides of a good dream and a bad dream, what kind of dream would you want right now, if you could, of Wendy? Hmm. I don't know. I really don't. I I I I I saw that you would likely ask somebody like that, and I thought about it. And um, I think I'd probably take anything as long as it was a as long as it was a positive dream. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I I I dream very. Big pardon. Do we get that a lot? So we tend to help people along the way. And so we first, you know, how old do you want her to be? Do you want her to be maybe what age she would be right now? Or would you want her to be younger than when she died? I think about about the age when she died. That's the way I always remember her. Nice. And then what setting would you like to be in? Would you want to be at Brock? Maybe at the golf tournament? Um, no, I think just probably outside somewhere, but nothing specific. Maybe down by the Negra River, because we used to, mm. I only live about five or six kilometers away from the Negra River, so we used to... Uh, either go down and drive along the river or ride our bikes down there. So that was always one of our favorite spots. It's just the, uh, along the Negro Parkway. So. Oh, that's beautiful. And how old do you, do you want to be? Do you want to be your age now or do you want to be younger? Oh, I'd, I definitely want to be younger. <laughs> My age sucks. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then the last thing is really to bring it all together. So now we have the scene. Did you want anything to be said? Like, do you guys just want to be walking? Or do you want there to be a moment between the two of you? Hmm. I suppose, um, if anything, like nothing specific, like I don't have any pressing issues right now. But in general, um, just to get some advice, she was mm -hmm. very, she was, uh, people use the phrase, she had an old soul or wise beyond her years, that sort of thing. And, mm -hmm. I think that may be a may have been a byproduct of her almost dying several times when she was only like twelve or thirteen or fourteen. Um, so that will uh, sort of bring things into perspective. But um, she always had uh, uh, good advice and was very observant. So if I ever if I ever reach a point where I really need some some good advice, I would like to be able to bring her back for that. I think. <laughs> nice. I like that. No, I like that. That's a good dream. And I like too, because the advice usually it's uh, that I know a lot of people get in their dreams too, is not really specific to maybe a concern they have in waking life. Um, but when they say it, it hits like a chord in them. You know, it's not like they're conscious of the, the advice they need. Um, but in the dream, they get it and they wake up and they're like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I've been avoiding that or something, right? So I like that. And I really hope, you know, uh, maybe like tonight, if that's possible, that you have this dream. If not, hopefully one day you have another positive dream of her that makes you sort of feel in that moment of uh, what, it, 
what was all it was all about your whole journey with each other um as you move forward yeah absolutely and um just the way your relationship kind of turned out and continues to develop essentially i think you guys uh have that bond you, you seem to have that real intuitive connection hear that from when you were describing her and how you guys met and you know the patience uh, i think is another learning that we can get from your story and your law story yeah. is the patience you have you know you don't uh, all these things you've done in your life uh you seem to understand that things kind of come at their time and place and and you know again uh thank you for the career that you've chosen because you know the work that you're doing has some real impact in society uh from sleep to personality uh perfectionism uh, i think we could all get a better sense of that uh and how it's kind of shaped in our own lives so thank you tim uh for that as well um so you've given us the website is there any other area people can reach you or contact you no, that's probably as good a contact as any is the uh, is just that email address if they have any questions about the tournament or even, um, you know, for me. And it just helps me, you know, keep it separate from the, my other, like, work email and that sort of thing. I'll know that it's uh, a bit more of a personal question, but if anybody does have questions about Brock, they can use that as well, and then I'll give you my other contact information when you email. So people can, and if, if they just want to ask you, uh, like, a professional question tim murphy you can google him and you know add yeah. brock university and i'm sure you'll be found pretty easily oh yeah i'm, I'm pretty pretty easily found yeah if, if you if you put any effort into it at all excellent thank you so much but, but, you, but you do need um make sure you put in brock university yeah please tim and murphy are relatively common names <laughs> and there are there are at least three or four other tim murphy professors in north america including one at university of british columbia that even does neuroscience something very similar to what i do yeah. So um, be sure to include Brock University in your search. Yeah, please add that to the Google search. You don't want to like, you know, just emailing random Tims. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. Uh, this podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. And if you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, please email us your story and what you would like to share at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. So with love and gratitude from us to you. The new beginning. beginning.